Hello and welcome to the Forge Podcast. My name is James, and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary, and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I have been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in the scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now, grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the hearing and reading of His Word. Welcome back to another episode of The Forge. We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis, and this episode brings us to chapter 2. So let's read the entire chapter together, beginning at the very first verse, Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, 
it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekiel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he had made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. The first three verses of chapter two fit very nicely with the end of chapter one. One of the things we should remember as we read the Bible is that chapter and verse numbers were not part of the original manuscripts. These have been inserted so that we can easily find our place as we read, study, and memorize together. This enables me to say things like, let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. So at any rate, these verses are part of chapter 2, and no one on the editorial committee consulted with me. Let's take a look at it. God was not exhausted. It says here that God rested. Um, God simply stopped. The purpose of the day of rest is for man to acknowledge God. And remember, I told you to be on the lookout first things as we go through the book of Genesis. So here we see God beginning a pattern, which we are going to see throughout the scriptures, a pattern of six and one. And this is something that we see, as I said, throughout the entire Bible. Um, a pattern of six and one. There are Six days of work and one day of rest. Six years of planting on the same field and then one year of no planting on that field. Uh, there are, for the servant and the master relationship, there are six years of servitude and then one year of jubilee or freedom. Um, this is God's pattern for doing things. Uh, God is a God of order, and we see that from the very beginning. So go through your Bible sometime and see how many patterns of six and one you can find. Uh, but the point is here that um, God rested not because he was tired, um, but because he was finished. So God commanded his people to keep the seventh day holy. And we haven't gotten to that part yet in the uh, Bible where the commandments are given. But anyone who's familiar with the Ten Commandments knows that there is a commandment about keeping the seventh day holy. Um, this is a command for God's people. Six days man is to work and on the seventh day um, man is to rest. God commands his people to worship him on that day. 
And this often raises the question, uh, when did the church begin to meet on Sunday? And now some make the claim that it was during Constantine's reign during the Roman Empire. However, if you read your Bible and look at the book of Acts, and specifically Acts chapter 20, verse 7, this indicates that Christians had already begun meeting on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday. And even if you look at an old-fashioned paper calendar, um, you'll see that Sunday is actually the first day of the week. It's not the seventh day. And it also appears from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, verse 2, that Christians could have already been meeting on Sunday. And you can look those verses up on your own, Acts 27 and uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Um, and look at the reference there. I want to say 1 Corinthians 16, 2 uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they were meeting on Sunday, but you could and get that implication from that verse. Anyway, there shouldn't be any big deal about when we meet as Christians. Meeting for a church service on one day or another does not mean that you're keeping the Sabbath, um, or for that matter, that you're not keeping it. And here's where I'm going with this. Jesus is the Sabbath. For the Christian, he is my permanent rest. And I feel the need to bring this up and address this here because recently I had a conversation with a Seventh-day Adventist. And as it always happens with these well-intended folks, uh, they want to talk about how they are true Sabbath keepers. And the entire belief system of Seventh-day Adventist is based on a false prophecy that had to be changed whenever it didn't happen the way they predicted or one of their early influencers predicted it was going to go. They have a completely heterodox understanding of eschatology and the work of Christ. Eschatology is just a fancy word for the last days or the end times. They have a messed up view of Christ's atonement and his work. So, and I don't want to get too far into it. Uh, and per, perhaps in a, in a future episode, we can do a series on uh, cults and heterodox beliefs, and we can give biblical answers for all those. But for now, I just want to encourage you, dear Christian, that you are free from the bondage of the law, according to Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through 26. You're free from the bondage of the law. So remember what I've already mentioned several times uh, throughout my podcast we do love to keep our little do-good lists. Um, we love those rules. We love those moral codes, those little checklists, anything to make us feel like we're doing something good. But for the Christian, salvation was purchased. And it doesn't matter on which day you meet. In fact, I could argue that no day is more or less special than any other uh, Colossians chapter 2 tells us of shadows of things to come. Uh, and Christian, what you need to understand is that Jesus is the substance. He's not the shadow. In Acts chapter 15, uh, verses 24 through 31, James, you know, you do remember the study of James, don't you? Because we've already covered the entire book of James. And we make mention that one of the proofs that we have of this particular James is found in Acts. Well, if you go to Acts chapter 15, verse 24 through 31, um, James makes no mention of keeping a certain day. Uh, Romans 14 is another great passage to consider for those who insist on keeping a Sabbath day. Um, and I honestly feel sad for people who do this kind of stuff um, because the truth is they haven't found their rest in Christ. Um, they're still striving. They're still working. They are lying to themselves. They will claim that it's not work or whatever. We're not to work. That's my only point. I'll take the free gift. Salvation was purchased for me. I guess there's one more thing I'll say about the seventh day. Uh, Jesus told us, 
that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. It is for man to take a day off and rest. It's to enjoy the things of God, to spend time with God. It's um, we're to thank God for his many blessings to us, his abundance, his great blessings that he's bestowed on us. And just take a moment and look and consider how many health problems come from people that will not rest. We all know about workaholics, people who work a lot, place a great emphasis on their job, on their business. You know, God's way is always better for you in the long run. Uh, So what am I saying here? On the one hand, it seems like I'm saying it doesn't really matter uh, what day we meet for worship. And yet here on the other hand, I'm saying you need to take a day off and you need to rest. And it's good for your health. Well, I'm actually saying both. Uh, Your salvation does not depend on which day you meet. That's the one point. The second point is um, that's not the same thing as never meeting at all (laughs) on a day that we have set aside to honor God. You know, God will honor any time that you set aside for him. And as I've made this claim before in previous podcasts, when you make time for God and you set a, a quiet time aside and you get into the Bible and you begin to pray, the Holy Spirit will meet you there. Now, I would encourage you, one of the things that we believe in, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That does not mean that I get my Bible and I go off somewhere all by myself and I isolate myself and I don't listen to my elders and I don't go to a church and I don't listen to a pastor. That's not what sola scriptura means. It means that we go to the Bible for all of our faith and practice and doctrine. That's what it means. And there is a place for God's church. There is a place for elders. There is a place for teachers and all of those things. So when I encourage you to set quiet time aside and honor God and that he will meet you there, I want to also encourage you at the same time, if you start getting notions in your brain and you think you have a new divine revelation or you are convinced that God's speaking to you and leading you in a certain way. I would just encourage you to get with uh, church elders, a pastor, preferably someone of the reformed tradition and make sure that you are not making things up. Make sure that you are checking these ideas with men who have studied scripture and uh, and then don't be ashamed or afraid to take their godly counsel. So let's get back to Genesis chapter two. I want to call your attention to the word Lord that we see in verse four, five, seven, and eight and elsewhere throughout the entire Bible. You'll notice that in your Bible, it's in all capital letters capital L, capital O, capital R, and a capital D. This is the name of God in Jewish scriptures. And Jews would not write his name uh, for fear of taking it in vain, which here again, we get into one of the commandments about taking God's name in vain. Uh, This is not what God meant. He did not mean you can't write my name. Uh, But the tradition was that to make sure that they would not take his name in vain, they left the vowels out. So at this point in human history, we don't know his name. Uh, Often in English translations, you'll see capital Lord, and it's what we use for Yahweh or Adonai. When you see those all capital letters, just knowing your reading and in your study, this is a place where the name of God was. And this is where we get Yahweh from. Some people have said Jehovah. Uh, The problem with that is there's no Jah sound in Hebrew. So we also see from these passages that there was probably never any rain on the earth. 
until the time of the flood, which we haven't got to, but we will get there eventually. There's a flood coming. But let me just say also that we don't know where Adam was created, and we don't know where the Garden of Eden was. And from time to time, people want to make outrageous claims about where the garden was, and the garden has been found. Um, And it may make for some very good entertainment, uh, but it's just never going to happen. Noah's flood changed everything in the world. But there is something special that we want to talk about here in the creation of man. Did you notice it when we were reading through Man was formed from the dust dust of the earth. Uh, but then something very special happens. God breathes into man the breath of life, it says. In fact, the Bible tells us that God breathed into the nostrils of man. And in my view, this is a picture of the closeness uh, that God has with man. It's just another way in which man shares in the image of God. God is life. And man lives not simply because God caused it to be so, because other creatures live as well. But look at the manner in which God chose to bring life to man or bring man to life. I want to call your attention to Psalm 103, Verses 11 through 14. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Watch this. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This passage speaks of God, a God who has mercy, which means mercy just means to hold back the punishment that we deserve for those who fear him. Friends, we live in a culture which has absolutely no fear of the one true and living God. We live in a nation where the leaders have boldly stated that God has no place in our legislative bodies and our processes. But for those who fear the Lord, God has great mercy. And our leaders and our culture needs needs to consider this. You have no fear of God when you tell him he has no place in your legislation. You have no fear of God when as a nation and as a culture, you say, we don't want you. We don't want to hear those Christians. We don't want to hear about our Puritan roots. We want to get rid of all that stuff. Our culture is on thin ice. And it doesn't matter who you vote for. Did you hear me? This is not about an election. This is not about politics. This is about the fear of God. But notice that for those who fear God, he has removed their sins as far as the east is from the west. And in this psalm, we see God compared to what? A father. Notice here in this passage that the word again, Lord, it's in all caps, just like we talked about here in our second chapter of Genesis. And what else does this psalm say? It says that God knows, or the word that it uses here is remembers that we are dust. Now, again, this is just like we were talking about rest. And I made the comment that God didn't rest because he was exhausted. He simply ceased. You know, these are human words to try to express something that is beyond our description. So God doesn't remember Uh, Because he forgot, you know, God did not forget that human beings are dust. (laughs) Whenever we read in the scriptures that God remembers, and when we get to the flood, we're going to read about Noah, and it's going to say that God remembered Noah. Well, did he forget about him? No, he didn't forget about him. This is a Hebrew way of expressing 
that God is about to move on your behalf or God knows something about you that you don't know. (laughs) And here it is. God knows that we are dust. God remembers that we are dust. Do you see how the smallest of ideas presented in Scripture tie in in other places in Scripture elsewhere? Do you see the importance of accepting this first account of man and his origins, his relationship to God? I hope you do see it. Once again, I will say that if you reject Genesis to be consistent, you must reject the rest of the Bible. Um, Here in Psalms, we have David, as in King David. He's the one who wrote this particular psalm. And he clearly believes that man was made from dust. And he clearly believes in the same Lord of Genesis. It's the same Lord who shows mercy to those who fear him. Remember those capital letters that I was telling you about. So, did you also know that the Messiah, that is the Savior, would come from David's line? That's why he's called the son of David. Why is that important? Because see, if Genesis is not correct, then King David is putting his faith and trust in something that's not correct. His psalm here is not exactly correct. And if David is not correct, then how can we trust that he is in the line of the Savior, Jesus Christ? You see, in the biblical account of man, Man is special. He's special creation. There is a special relationship between the human race and the creator. In the evolutionary account, there is absolutely nothing special about man. Man is a glorified animal. He is a meat bag of chemicals that just happen to be in a certain combination. And your combination is different than mine. Things like the way our brain functions and emotions and stuff like that just happen in our convictions about things, our ideas about things. You just happen to be, as I've heard other uh, speakers say, you're just fizzing in a different way than I'm fizzing. But we're all just bags of space dust. But friends, as a human being, you are not that. And deep down in your heart and your soul, if you're listening to this and you're a skeptic or you're not a believer in Jesus, Deep down inside yourself, you know that you are special creation. You know that you are an image bearer of the most high God. So notice also we have another first, and uh, it's the tree of life. This is the first time that the tree is mentioned, this particular tree, the tree of life. Think about the fact that if Adam would have eaten from that tree, he and all of us, most likely all we, you know, he and we would never die. Can you imagine suffering for all eternity in a fallen physical body? I think of that poor character, uh, Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. If you know the story, uh, Gollum was not always what he later becomes as the story develops in the story Uh, this character lived far too long, and by the end of his life, he is a grotesque shell of what he once used to be. And it's a powerful picture, whether it was intended or not. It's a powerful picture of what sin does to a person. Now, imagine being gripped by sin and all of its death and deterioration, and yet not physically dying. And this raises the question, where's the tree of life now? Well, it's in heaven. See, our Bible begins with the tree of life and it ends with the tree of life. Look up Revelation 22, verse 2. See, without the tree of life in Genesis, I have no tree of life in Revelation. Dear Christian, do you see the importance of believing the Genesis account? Do you see that? And there's another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we are going to talk more about the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the next chapter. 
but this is the one that they ate of, and their eyes were opened. It appears that there was one river uh, divided into four river heads here in Scripture. They're named uh, the Pishon, uh, Gion, Hedekel, uh, which is the same river as the Tigris and the Euphrates. Um, we also notice from the reading that uh, geographical locations are given to help uh, to locate uh, these rivers. And now it's time for a James opinion. Perhaps in future episodes, we'll have some kind of a trumpet fanfare or some kind of musical interlude to introduce a James opinion. But be that as it may, uh, we've not gotten this far into the book of Genesis yet, but we will eventually read about a global flood. And for those who may not know the story, a man named Noah and his family were saved alive through the flood. And that said, the Tigris and the Euphrates of today have nothing to do with the rivers and the Garden of Eden. They share the same name, and that's all. And why do I have that opinion? Glad you ask. Because there was a worldwide flood, which comes 1,656 years after the time Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, which is going to happen here in chapter 3. We haven't gotten that far yet. It is a James opinion here that the descendants of Noah's family, at some point after they got off the boat, uh, that they named uh, the rivers that we now see today, and they named them after uh, the rivers that they knew of, uh, from the Garden of Eden. Now you may ask, um, okay, that sounds like uh, a pretty reasonable explanation, but what about the lands of Havilah and Cush and Assyria, um, which are also mentioned in the scripture? Well, on that particular question, I offer not one, but two James opinions. So number one, these could be geographical references from a time period before the flood. They could have been written by Adam. You may remember my other James opinion about how records were written and how things were transferred. I believe that the garden could be seen on earth before the flood. And we will see in chapter three that God placed a cherubim at the east of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. That's what the scripture says. So there's no reason to believe that Eden did not stay right where it was until the time of the flood. Personally, I believe it was there. I believe there was a cherubim guarding it. Um, and I believe it was a testimony. Because no doubt Adam and Eve told their children and their grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on down the line. They told the human race of their origins. And I believe the Garden of Eden could have been there uh, as a testimony that they were telling the truth. My only point is it could be that these are not the regions that we would associate with Assyria or Cush today uh, from uh, ancient history um, at a time after the flood. Um, but these were regions that did exist prior to the flood. And Adam is simply using them as a reference point, just as we would use uh, geographical references today. And you'll notice too that there is reference to the gold and the precious stones that are found in one of the regions. Again, just the James opinion. I believe that the earth prior to the flood, um, all of these elements, all of these things were more concentrated into one specific area. They weren't scattered around the world the way we see it today. So again, here's my final James opinion on, on this particular question. These geographical locations could have been references at a time after the flood. So perhaps Moses and the people of his time thought they knew where Eden would have been located 
um, in a post-flood world. Uh, this is not my favorite option, but it is a legitimate option, reasonable to consider. Uh, just as the rivers of a post-flood world were named after the rivers of Eden, it is entirely possible that there were geographical regions in a post-flood world that were named after the original pre-flood regions, and they have no true relationship to them whatsoever. Um, then again, this could have been inserted by an editor, someone helping Moses out, um, or a scribe at a later time to give a location of where they thought Eden might have been. So to summarize my James opinions on all this talk about the rivers and these geographical locations, here it is. Here's my summary. It was either a pre-flood author, contributor, or editor who was offering landmarks during the time of Adam, or a post-flood source doing the same thing just prior to the time of Moses or around Moses' time. Does any of it really matter? In the grand scheme of things, no, it doesn't matter one little bit. It doesn't have a thing to do with salvation. And no matter what you believe about the options that I've offered here, it doesn't affect a single bit of Christian doctrine. And I'll just add this in my summary of my opinions. They are just that. They are opinions. They're not scripture. And I'm not really much of an original thinker. <laughs> Most everything that I've come to, I've read somewhere else, or I've heard some other teacher or some instructor somewhere along the way who has these ideas and I have borrowed them from other sources. While this stuff is interesting to contemplate, it doesn't really have any kind of an impact whatsoever on Christian doctrine. Let's take a look at Adam. It appears that Adam uh, was given a job to do. He was to uh, keep the garden, but this is light work compared to what happens after the fall of man, after sin, after the curse, the ground brings forth thorns, thistles, it requires hard work and the sweat of our brow, so to speak, in order to gain food from the fields. And I'll just pause here for a minute. A true Christian loves God's earth and all creation. It is man in his greed that has harmed the environment. And we live in a world which is attempting and most likely will overthrow Western culture. Uh, one of the tools that's often used is this idea of uh, an environmental movement. Today's environmental movement has nothing to do with saving the planet, and it has everything to do with overthrowing Western culture. Um, where the gospel is preached, there's great freedom and there's choice that follows. Uh, to the extent that the gospel is received by a culture is the extent to which its environment is one of cleanliness and care. Where nations have turned from God, there is great sorrow and poverty begins and commoners live in environmental filth. I have traveled the world dear friends, and I can tell you things like clean water in your house and a flushing toilet that actually works, it's a blessing. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Western culture is perfect. Far from it. Um, I'm simply pointing out that true Christians seek to take care of the earth because it belongs to God. Now, there are cultures without a biblical worldview that are fully capable of doing the same but they do it with the wrong motivation. And often, uh, godless cultures who have rejected Christ, they do not care for the environment at all. And this is what I've seen personally. I've seen in cultures all over the world where Christ is rejected. Getting back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, we have God's first command for man. Here's the first command. 
And this is what God says. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a very simple rule here. Very simple rule. Don't eat of the tree. <laughs> but the implications of this one simple rule are, as we shall see, enormous. In verse 18, something beautiful happens. God recognizes that Adam is incomplete and he creates Eve. Now, man by himself is incomplete. Pause. I don't believe it. Every man on the planet must get married. And that's not what I'm saying. In fact, I do believe that there are people that God has called to a life of singleness. And they are to be happy with what God has called them to and to rejoice in him. But overwhelmingly, the vast majority of the human race, we desire the companionship that can only be found in a husband and wife relationship. God recognizes that here in Adam. God set this up from the beginning. So we have this statement here, uh, and then we have verses 19 and 22 that give us a backstory. And here's the backstory. Imagine God bringing all the animals to Adam to be given a name. And I think about the brain power of Adam. You know, he had massive intelligence. He named every one of God's creatures. And I've often wondered as Adam is naming the animals, did he notice that there was a male and female? Did he think that male and female were for the animals only? Did he think that it was just going to be him and God forever? I don't know. We don't know what Adam thought, but we do know that God wanted a helper for man. So the word for rib here in Hebrew could have meant any part of the side of Adam. And again, this does not really matter if it was a rib or a section of his side. It truly doesn't matter. What is significant here is that Eve came from Adam's side. You see, woman completes man. Your wife is there, husbands, under the protection of your wing, so to speak. And I believe that is what is pictured here. You are to be her covering, and she is to be your helper. And verses 21 through 25, it tells us how God meant for marriage to be. But you know, man seems to have a very hard time sticking to what God intended for marriage. Certainly, we see that today. See, God had an intention for sexual relationships. He meant for them to be in marriage. But because of man's failure in this area, I want you to look at the problems that we face in our culture. We have divorce. We have split homes. In our culture, we have dating. And we have for the most part, rejected the idea of a God-chosen mate. Uh, though God is gracious to us in this area, I believe in our culture, he often blesses and he does provide for us even as we mess things up individually and as a culture. We have sexually transmitted diseases. And that is, if you remember, Back when we first started in the book of Genesis, I made reference to the book of Romans in chapter one, and it talks about the people that were engaging in sexual immorality, receiving in their body the penalty, which was due. The penalty of what? Their sexual perversion. And so sexually transmitted diseases, HIV, these come from not keeping sexual activity within marriage. You know, true love will wait. True love will wait. 
get rid of anyone. If you're single and you happen to be listening to this, get rid of anyone who's pushing you to have sex before you're married. Anyone who wants to have sex with you before you are married, they are motivated for selfish reasons. They're not thinking about you. True love will wait and true love will respect, will respect you and it will respect the boundaries that God has placed there. Imagine two virgins getting married and staying faithful to one another for their entire life. There would be no sexually transmitted diseases. Isn't that amazing? You know, notice also that God did not make mirror images. In other words, he didn't make a male to be compatible or comparable to Adam. He made a compliment. He made one to compliment the other. And homosexuality is truly, it truly is nothing more than man rejecting God's plan for marriage. It's man, once again, shaking his fist at the one true living God as he exclaims, I am not going to submit. I do not want the compliment that you made for me. I want a mirror image of self. I love self. I do not need the helper that you made for me. Lastly, I want you to notice in verse 25, it says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Notice the openness that they have in marriage. There was no sin against God at this point. And also take a, take a look at the verse before that. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Look at these few first things that are happening here. We have the first wife. We have the first marriage conducted by God himself. And we have a foundational principle here for the family. See, once you get married, I don't go running home to mommy and daddy. And she doesn't go running home to her parents either. We cling to one another because we have become one flesh. And I often think about how wonderful and beautiful it must have been in the Garden of Eden before sin with our first parents created in the image of God. Well, friends, we're going to stop here. I hope this is useful to you as you continue to grow in Christ. The next episode, we will get into chapter three, Genesis chapter three and the fall of man. You do not want to miss it. Thank you again for listening to James Reed's Forge podcast. And don't forget to leave a review with comments. Let me hear from you. Leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome the wounds caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. 
I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out, not only in you, but in his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him.